Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Rebecca Atkinson-Lord, and I am here at Camden People's Theatre with Brian Logan, the Artistic Director, and Amber Massey-Blumfield. Blomfield, yeah. Blomfield, <laughs> um, who is the executive director. And we're here, as normal, talking about legacy for the Legacy Tapes. These are a series of conversations about how you might want to leave something lasting in the ephemeral medium of theatre, or maybe how you might not want to. Um, so hi, Amber and Brian. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and we've just been chatting a little bit before, and I've sort of warned you that I'm going to say to you both that... Um, you both have slightly idiosyncratic paths mm-hmm. into running a theatre. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I was just really curious about how you both got here. Um, yeah, because so, so just for people listening, one of the reasons that I'm talking to Amber and Brian together is that I'm really interested in how they work quite symbiotically um, and they manage a sense of kind of pragmatic financial future planning with artistic um, brilliance and an agenda for innovation. Um, I think that's really exciting. So, guys, how did you get here? Why are you doing this, and how did you come together? Quickly, in like mm. three words. Yeah. Um, it, it's appropriate that we've got idiosyncratic roots to do this because <laughs> it's an idiosyncratic place, isn't it? It would feel inappropriate mm. if we had had conventional roots to running CBT. Um, my background was that I have co-run an independent touring theatre company for. Y- for about 15 years before I arrived here, you no, know, 13 or 14. But I also had a parallel career and still do as an arts journalist. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, people have asked me throughout my career, you know, when am I going to give up one in order to do the other? You know, here I still am doing both. But yeah, so I was an independent theatre maker, not not a director. Usually, artistic directors tend to be people who directed. Mm-hmm. I had not. I have done directing, but it was never my main thing. I was a divisor performer. Ran this company, did a bit of journalism. Here I am. And okay, so what was the trigger for you to go? I will run a building. Uh, my partner Jenny. When <laughs> I when I, I took over Canada People's Theatre, it, what the job advertised was not artistic director; it was mm-hmm. director, mm-hmm. which was well. I spoke to Chris Good once, off the record. <laughs> Chris Good used to be artistic yes. director of CBT. I love that you're now putting off the record on the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I probably totally misrepresent again, but he gave me the impression that it, the job ceased to be artistic director after his reign because the board had thought he was paying too much attention to the art and not enough to the, all the other things mm-hmm. you need to do when you run a theatre. But anyway, by the time I arrived, it was advertised as director, uh, which includes all the things that Amber now does, which are far too complicated for someone like me <laughs> so I probably wouldn't have applied for that but my partner Jenny Jenny Payton mm-hmm. who at the time was a uh, uh, working in a producing capacity at Fuel Theatre mm-hmm. and also at the Wellcome Trust um, she suggested that we go for it as a job share so so we would share that job me three days her two with mm-hmm. her being de facto exec director or the role didn't exist to be de facto AD so so I think I had expressed interest first of all. I think I felt in my career like I was ready for a new challenge. Mm-hmm. Had been drifting a little bit, but uh, yeah, without her, I think I would have been a singularly unimpressive candidate. So in fact, we got the job as a job share, and by the time Jenny left, we had restructured the organisation so there was an ED and an mm-hmm. AD role, albeit that there were still part-time roles. Then since Amber's arrived, the ED has become a full-time role. Right, you'll go. Okay. Um, So I went to drama school and I did quite an experimental performance degree. So that was quite aligned with CPT's work. And in fact, one of my plays that I wrote when I was a student was on here, which is uh, sort of nice. And in fact, one of your early plays was on here. Yeah, the first thing that my company, Cartoon de Salvo, ever did was at CPT. It was one of the first places we performed it. In uh, uh, what I think was the original Sprint Festival in 1997. So then after I graduated, um, I was attempting to be a playwright with a relatively modest amount of success, I'd say. Um, And so I got into doing PR for the arts, working Mm. for Mobius and working with a lot of companies that 
have passed through CPT's doors and in fact did some work for CPT but also other places like Battersea Arts Centre and you know shows that were at the South Bank Centre and the National and oh basically absolutely everywhere at one point or another lots of Edinburgh Fringe stuff um, and then kind of thought that maybe I'd try doing sort of PR and comms in a more strategic way so I went to work for a guy called Mark Bukowski who's kind of like a mad brilliant PR guru and was doing like a lot more kind of commercial entertainment communications but very kind of strategic projects for like big brands like Universal Music Group and Ticketmaster and those sorts of people and then realised I didn't really like that very much and unfortunately I'm not very motivated by money I wish I could be it's so annoying but it's not the thing that floats my boat so um then went to work at the Albany as head of communications and I think just was very interested in the idea of kind of how things work strategically and you know that idea of kind of long-term planning and how you build yeah a kind of an arch over kind of five years or ten years about where you're going so that kind of took me down the the idea of becoming an executive director so when this job came up I was like well that's perfect for me I know I know CPT so well and I love it so it all worked out beautifully excellent and how have you because I think it's kind of interesting when people work so closely together because I Rachel and I did that at Oval House Mm. like how do you manage how do you manage making strategic plans do you always is you know is it do you always agree which I know can't be true um, <coughs> we get on. I think we get on remarkably well. Yeah, the biggest no, argument so. we've ever had is about the piano in the foyer and whether we could get rid of it or <laughs> not. I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, that's I won. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it works pretty well. No, we don't. And do we always agree? No, I think we sometimes got different emphases. But I think the the values seem to be the same. Mm. Uh, you know, and even the differences of emphases are usually fairly easy to sort out. By the time we end up. Uh, end of an argument it's usually quite easy to find common ground mm. yeah so so yeah it feel, feels to me like it dovetails quite well our, our sensibilities and 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 do you have proper do you have like sensible city down adult conversations or do you have like screaming rowing matches or do you have somewhere in between no i don't think we've ever had a rowing match actually do no. like, why is it so <coughs> much fun i know i know i, I don't know yeah i don't i don't do i don't do rows I mean, i'm sure i don't know whether you do but if, if we did have a rowing match i'd curled in a ball in tears <laughs> I'm, I'm the least confrontational person in the world so okay. I'd rather lose an argument than win it shouting I think we're both I guess we're both quite pragmatic about things and we kind of like know wh- which each other's territory is really and kind of we have quite a useful relationship where we'll kind of have a conversation and maybe play devil's advocate a little mm. bit with one another but then like ultimately I know what's Brian's decision to make and he knows what's my decision to make and but I mean, generally, I know that sounds like incredibly boring, but we do really get on well. At, I think we get on well. It's probably loads of simmering resentment I'm totally unaware of, but like you know, it's you know, it's us two and Anna, our general manager, mm. and I do think we have a pretty clear shared set of values about like what we want CPT to be and what we want it to do, and you know, we're all quite politically in tune and stuff. So, yeah. So that's a great place for me to go. Okay, so when you're thinking about what you want CPT to be. Are you thinking, just into like, so so just bringing in this idea of legacy that these podcasts are, su- are supposed to be about? Um, what, what are your stresses? Because I think so much of the work at CBD has a real political edge, eye ch- texture. Um, are you conscious of shaping a wider? Are you conscious of shaping something outside this space, or is it just about shaping the artistic? narrative here or to talk to me about that like what what are the ripples that cpt sends out for you mm. <clears throat> i think um i think i'm very conscious of us kind of like shaping you know sh- well shaping a kind of or contributing to a broader landscape of kind of ideas and what people are thinking about i mean i genuinely feel quite strongly that calm down dear has probably played a role in you know albeit a small one but in kind of pushing feminism to the forefront of the agenda again and um you know it's been going for four years and it's really been part of that climate and i think that you know it has had a powerful role to play i'm also really really conscious of the idea that i think we um 
you know, we are... I, do, I don't like to think of us as a sort of gateway where everyone kind of passes through and, like, goes on to bigger and better things because there's plenty of artists that don't and stay, you know, mm. stay working at CPT. But I do think because we're quite often the first place that, you know, artists might have their first experience, uh, professional experience or kind of put on shows for the first time, we do sort of have a bit of a kind of conduit or catalyst role in terms of what might be happening in the industry and more broadly in five years time what the big ideas are and also who the artists are that are making the work mm. and so I think that you know one of the really big passions I think we both share and I mean particularly for me it's you know thinking about the question of who the artists we work with are and who we give an opportunity to and how that might impact on the landscape in five or ten years time it's like if we get it right that has a consequence for who might be at the national or you know mm-hmm. But you know, it's, it has merit on its own terms as well. But is that fair? Yeah, it's all fair. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I think I think when we were bandying back and forth that early draft of the business plan, one of, one of the, your drafts of the mission statement or the vision or whatever, I think I sent back because there had been a f- phrase in it that sort of implied that we were going to change the world or something. And I was like, oh, we should do that. <laughs> so I think I'm probably like just constitutionally, like a bit less at ease about stating the, the wider political impact we can have. That's but my that, PR background. Yeah, it's, it's not that I don't want to believe it. It's just like you know, I am also aware that we're small fry in the great scheme of things, and I'm you know, and I'm Scottish and don't want to like overstate <laughs> anything or blow my own trumpet or whatever. But but yeah, I'm I you know I'm. I'm satisfied that everything Amber said is true about how we can you know, start things here that go on to have bigger effects elsewhere. You know, and we can't, you know, like agenda raising or, or, you know, creating a focus around things that are already out there in the ether. You know, I think Cam Downey has done that. Or, you know, like when No Milk for the Foxes was here, which was, which was a show that a couple of, uh, you know, working class theatre makers who had not made an o- their own show together wanted to make a show about class representation in the theatre. You know, we and before that run was finished, we got a feature on the arts pages of the Guardian about that show and about some research that some academics at LSE were doing about you know, working class actors and so on. Mm-hmm. And we we helped bring that together and get a feature in a national newspaper about that. So, that which is, you know, that's just a, one example among many about uh, uh, the way that our political sensibility can create. Can have a more of a high-profile effect than you might expect for a relatively small theatre. And also, I think it's I think it is relevant that you know Brian has this other career as a journalist, and my background is in PR because I do think that probably gives us a particularly attuned sense of kind of you know what what the kind of the zeitgeist topics are and how we can perhaps engage in conversation more widely than simply with our own arts community. so, I mean, that's a good example, but I mean, we're always kind of pushing topics that we think have a, a relevance to a broader audience than purely an arts audience, um, and that are, you know, particularly apposite in one way or another. So how do you, um, because I think one of the things that I'm aware of when talking to artists is this sense that there's the art thing and then there's like the political there's like the need there's the thing you need to say and then the why you need to say it and managing the balance of those things is can be a tough one because at the point at which you're like i'm just going to shout at you about like feminism or poli- or class or whatever um then the people listening are probably going to be like well, i'm just going to not listen um, how do you what are the conversations you have with artists that kind of manage that or do you not do you let them judge it mm. <clears throat> well one of the reasons when when I started working at CBT you know it was a, it was a decision that Jenny and I actively made to go okay let's let's be more declaratory about the fact that Camden People's Theatre has a political agenda that didn't used to be in the mission statement or whatever. It feels like it's in the name though. It feels like it's in the name. That, it yeah. partly came from that because when we when we arrived in our interview in fact uh, or certainly after we arrived the board said to us very explicitly you can change the name. The perception was and they didn't encourage us to change the name but they obviously there was a sense that the name was a problem or mm. the name was a you know and for a while so we thought about that. Jenny I'm sure she won't mind me saying was well up for changing the name mm. and I thought 
uh, actually at the time we thought well the conspicuous the wrong thing about the name is the word peoples because it makes us sound like a trade union or the People's Front of Judea or whatever. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah, although actually, retrospectively, I realised that the... And then I thought, no, maybe it's the word theatre that's the problem because actually we do such a white, like, performing yeah. arts or whatever else. And I now realise the problem word is Camden because, because <laughs> yeah. we're actually not in Camden town. It should be used to the People's Theatre or whatever. Although we're very proud to be in Camden Borough. Um, but yeah, we decided eventually, and Jenny was totally on board with this, that actually rather than be apologetic about the word People's in your name, let's let's make it mean something so then we embarked on a, po- on a whole sort of inquiry about what does it mean to have people's theatre in your name especially when you're associated with experimental work and popular mm-hmm. and experimental uh, tend to be thought of as different things yeah that really pisses me it off it pisses me off yeah. tell me about it pissing you off well I think if people you know if people are alienated from the theatre which is a whole different discussion the thing they're alienated from is not experimental <laughs> theatre it's people swishing around in gowns opening French windows you know, or, you know, no or, more French windows. <laughs> you know, but not, it's the thing that has alienated them from the theatre is unlikely to be the really exciting stuff that a whole bunch of amazing young artists are doing at CBT. Yeah. If they could see that, they might feel less alienated. You know, even and I think there's a really insidious narrative around like what is accessible because if you assume that a normal, an ordinary person, a civilian, cannot engage with and access really quite complex experimental work then what you're saying is that those people are stupid and fuck you frankly if, 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 if that's you know if that's your assumption yeah no no I totally agree so that yeah, that was part of the agenda of exploring this word people's and making CBT a bit more of a overtly political place but one of the others is that I had you know as a journalist I had written up about the, the phenomenon whereby you know independently made devised theatre tended I'll come at it this other way. Political theatre tended to be seen as the work of like solo pl- playwrights. Mm. Like, so David Hare, he's our greatest political playwright, isn't he? Mm-hmm. You know, polit- political work seemed to be associated with individual playwrights espousing political philosophies, whereas the devised independent sector was more associated with intimate personal concerns mm. and was seen. This is this is all out of date now. It's no longer the case. But you know, I'd, I'd written articles on that phenomenon, and my my observation arriving in this post was that. There was a whole generation of people making work who were politicised, and obviously the world was becoming more politicised, but they, they would benefit from encouragement to bring that out of their work a bit, because there was a real stigma to the whole idea of being didactic. Mm-hmm. And I still think that's the case in, among the younger generation of theatre makers. There's, nothing you, there's no greater sin than being didactic, mm-hmm. telling people what to think, you know, which is fine. No one wants to be told what to think, but I, I often go to theatre and think, I've enjoyed that, but I wish you'd told me what you think. Yeah. You know, What's your central thesis? Yeah. And sometimes yeah. people are so terrified of telling other people what to think that they, they don't even say what they themselves think. Mm. So anyway, I, I felt that we, we, it would not be a bad job to do to encourage people to, to, you know, if they had political instincts when they were making a piece of work, to, to be more overt about that. Um, I forget what your question was. I'm <laughs> sure that's a brilliant answer. How, it, was, it was a brilliant answer. Yeah, it was about how, how, <coughs> you, manage, how you manage artistry and political agendas. Mm. And that was that was an answer. Yeah, that uh, yeah, we've tended we've we've tended to uh, encourage people to not be afraid of being didactic. You can always mm. pull it back, but don't be afraid to walk towards it in yeah. the first place. Yeah. Um, okay. So mm-hmm. within that, if like there's there lots of things that we're touching on that are kind of around ideas of what people refer to as risk, like shit that might bomb, or mm. that people might not like, or that might. I don't know. I don't really know what risk means. But um, other than people not paying to see it, which I don't really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is, it feels like a lot of the work that you, you support is quite risky. Mm. In whatever that, that Arts Council board definition is. Um, how do you manage or that risk versus a sense of stability for the organisation or a sense of kind of something that... that um, uh, you know, a fixed point that the organisation can move towards, or or maybe, well, talk to me about that. You might want to reject the premise of the question. Mm-hmm. Feel free. I think it's something about. Um, I think we. I think we. For me, it's about accepting that that's what CPT exists to do. Mm-hmm. That's kind of our raison d'être to be a place, you know, for kind of like risky work and where. Um, you know artists can come and put stuff on that you know really might not find a home elsewhere and I think as soon as we start to think about our business plan 
moving to a place where that's not possible that's not us doing what we exist to do anymore so we might have conversations for example like would we wish at some point to be in a much bigger venue for example or a, a better venue okay. um you know but then that that conversation always comes back to the ke- the question of well is there a risk if we're suddenly in a venue with 250 seats that our programming concerns are going to be entirely different mm-hmm. and therefore the answer to that that question is likely to be no we wouldn't move into a bigger space because we wouldn't be able to program the same kind of work so for me it's the principle of you know particularly from the point of view of being an executive director your job is to understand what position the organization holds within the whole ecology Mm -hmm. and do that really bloody well Mm -hmm. and right now I think for CPT that means you know enabling people to take risk Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was right. We are in a, a quite a lucky position to be able to take a punt on stuff without thinking that we're going to lose our shirt because it's, because it's a wee place and because we're used to doing so. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I seldom conceptualise things in terms of risk at CBT. <coughs> I suppose we, we have, the more successful we become, the more... You can totally tell me to fuck off with my false binary. No, it's, not, <laughs> it's not a false binary, it's just, I suppose you just... Yeah... I don't know what's risky in the context of CPT. Yeah. You know what, what might be perceived as risk elsewhere to us is just not normal. I mean, occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, reality. Uh, yeah, which isn't me going, oh my god, look at us, daredevil, tightrope walkers. It just doesn't particularly feel like that because mm. we, you know, we don't have that high a height from which to fall if something goes wrong because we're pretty skin tender. <laughs> That was one of the things when I left Oval House that kind of bamboozled me because there were things that I'd been working on that everyone at Oval House had been like, oh God, this is so trad and had really kind of sneered at me for. And I tried to take out into the world and they were like, oh God, it's so risky. We can't, I'm like, are you yeah. kidding Are you kidding me? This is like the boring thing no one has let me do for four years. Mm. I mean, I suppose it, like in terms of commercial risk, we, inc- you, you know, like you were really keen on us doing three-week runs. Which I, which I agree with. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's good for our programme if over the course of a year, you know, because a lot of work comes here for one, two or three nights. Mm-hmm. It's good if we can find several shows a year that can do good runs. It's, but it's good for CPT, it's good for the artists if we can uh, um, help them to do that. But that's sometimes a more risky proposition for us, given the type of work we work with. Are, are we confident we can find an audience for such and such a show over a substantial run? So that, that to, to that degree, there is such a thing as commercial risk. But Sometimes there's there are risks associated with some of the more far out material we stage, but I just I love it though. I love it those nights when it's just something we've programmed and it's just so completely bonkers and far out and you're just in the theatre and you just think Oh, I just don't feel like there's many other places in London this could happen and I just love that and I think that's exactly what we exist to do and it's like they you know, the more like far out and like crazy it is, I just think the better basically. But yeah, that's yeah. what we exist I mean, to do. Because that's what people come for. Um, or not. I, think, I think we've worked... I think we've done a lot in terms of like building an audience for what we do and people understanding what we do and us kind of like not being afraid to be what we are. So for like example, our season brochure, this like... You know, this season brochure we decided to put on the front this autumn CPT will smash the patriarchy, solve the housing crisis, fix Europe, put the kids in charge and send you home with a song in your heart. Mm. I mean, it's quite a, I think it's quite a bold statement about kind of what kind of theatre we want to be. I mean, it's a bit tongue in cheek, clearly. Although yeah, I hate we do. I really love that on the Calm Down Day poster it says smashing the patriarchy in three weeks flat or your money back. Yeah. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's something that kind of amuses me about that. Yeah, totally. And I think that, like, that sort of, I don't know, I think we've, we've probably gone quite a long way in communicating more about kind of like the boldness of what we're about and the kind of politics of what we're about and where we're coming from and I think you know it's working I mean our box office like doubled last year without us increasing the ticket prices because we are like getting a lot more people in and I think we're just articulating what what we're about more clearly and just being yeah kind of more specific about what we are rather than kind of trying to be all things to all people but then of course you're like balancing with the fact that we really want to kind of like build our local audiences and this thing about like the question of where populism sits in relation to experimental work but that's kind of an ongoing interesting point of inquiry I think so 
I mean, yeah. I, I just wasn't sure if you want to say. Something. No, no. I mean, I'm sort of. I'm sitting here thinking about. I'm just cogitating now on the word risk and what its, yeah. its various meanings in the context of CBT and its work. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether there's anything to say about that. There probably isn't about the various conversations we have about like box office splits and financial deals with artists and stuff like that, which is a conversation we have a lot of because we, you know, we want to get it right, and we're very aware of the whole conversation around artists getting paid. You know, and the degree to which, how, how do you divide up the degree to which you want to share, you know, the, the artists have to take some of the financial risk as well as the, the venue. And I'm not sure, yeah, yeah, I, I'm only throwing that in because it's another conversation in which the word risk crops up. Yeah, and I think that conversation is such a tricky one because when you're, because like a, a, a small venue for like CBT with limited box office income and like limited kind of uh, subsidy, like, there, there's only so much there is only so much risk that you can take in a sustained way and that organisation kind of can't exist in the same narrative as somewhere like you know as a big regional flagship studio who who actually often will work on a similar financial deal mm-hmm. so I think that's in that conversation around risk because because artists bearing the risk you know 50 quid risk for an artist is a much bigger percentage than a 50 quid risk for an NPO mm-hmm. of any size, mm-hmm. but again, the, like the relative risk is is so different between somewhere between an artist and then somewhere like CPT and somewhere like I don't know, Birmingham Rep or the Royal Exchange or one of those big places. I find that co- I find that conversation actually really tricksy because because my instinct is be like is always to be like no, it's not fair to make the artists take the risk because that means they can't actually live anywhere if it mm-hmm. goes wrong. But then at the same time, that 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 conversation actually is also true here because there'll come a point where <laughs> you take too much risk and this place cannot exist mm. um, but then there are, there are the, the, the amount of risk you can take is upscale so I feel like we don't talk about it in kind of a, a, a proportional way enough yeah it's, I, yeah I mean we're talking about this a lot at the moment and we definitely haven't alighted on a solution yet I think you know I think the other big thing as well is like how how do we kind of like how do we rebalance things without avoiding the impulse to become much more commercially minded Mm. about things because and actually you know because if we're paying a lot more in terms of fees or we're getting you know a much smaller split then we need to know that we're going to make more money out of it Mm. um and then automatically your psychology is well we're going to go for much more kind of like safe bet shows then Mm. but I guess yeah we're kind of weighing all these things up at the moment and you know trying to figure out an answer of balancing all these things but it is you know you're right we're tiny yeah and as an artist also I get I think there's also a thing that I sometimes want to say to artists is that you can't you can't expect your art to exist outside a commercial mechanism and then expect to be paid in a in in a way that reflects a commercial mechanism and and that and that's an unfortunate that's an unfortunate truth we either buy into the capitalist market economy or we totally destroy it but those, like it's it's difficult for those things to exist at once but then when i'm working as an you know when i'm an artist when i'm I've got a producer hat on i'm like no I, yeah. I i deserve to be paid i want you know the means of production yeah in my hands totally yeah we'd like that too Mm. Um, you know but yeah it's balancing all those things and it's all those questions like well is it better for us to you know make more money to spend on commissions and you know we have a whole you know big seed commissioning program for artists Mm. from BME backgrounds now you know is it better that we're kind of supporting that or should we just be shifting the box office split or should you know it's such a complex (laughs) nuanced thing and you know the decisions that you're weighing up you're you know coming back to that thing about like what's the mission statement all the time and what are we trying to achieve but it's all these like nuanced decisions along the way so um so in so okay so when you're talking when you're thinking about all of this stuff because it Mm. because it because it feels like you guys are really wrangling with like what the ecology is and what you want it to be and and trying to send meaningful ripples out it's like that vision visual something yeah yeah um do you like where where is your point of assessment like where at what point do you measure whether you're achieving it like is it in a year is it in 
five years is it a decade is it a hundred because I guess that that is related to how, what is yeah. you're seeking to affect well I sort of I think my psychology is probably I maybe think about things kind of like five or ten years time because I always have this vision in my mind of like what yeah what like the the land you know the theatre landscape particularly might look like as a consequence of what we do in five or ten years time and we have like so we're just writing our business plan for 2018 to 22 which is a bit scary um and you know actually so we're still pursuing the same mission but then over that time period we will have like a couple of key objectives for us to kind of focus on so one thing is about going to be about the ethnic diversity mm-hmm. of emerging artists mm-hmm. is it okay to say this mm-hmm. yeah and I think the other thing like <coughs> really taking you know that four-year period to understand what localism means to CPT because we've always in the past had like an idea that we want to be much more engaged locally but maybe it's been a little bit intangible about what that means and like you know we're such a tiny organization what who is our kind of local community it doesn't mean being you know all things to everyone that mm. happens to live in mw1 whatever so actually really giving ourselves permission during that business plan period to kind of almost experiment a little bit and you know try out different things and answer that question for ourselves organisationally with a view to then the next period we might have a much more coherent strategy and go well we spent that four years trying out different things like looking at it from different perspectives and now we've discovered this so this is what's going to happen over the next period mm-hmm. I think that's quite helpful actually you know not not feeling that we necessarily have to have all the answers straight away but that we can engage with the process of kind of learning about it creatively and artistically and be intrigued by the the process of finding the answers out rather than you know having to know it all straight away yeah because but i think especially in terms of diversity like no one knows any of the bloody answers (laughs) i mean most of us don't even know what the right question is yeah so that's a really nice place to start is what like what even are we asking but also i think as well this kind of like particularly on the question of um the ethnic diversity of the artists we're working with I think we're like we're being quite crude about it right now like talking about like what percentage of the artists in our program come from non-white backgrounds and things like that and what what should it be that feels like horribly crude I mean that you know we shouldn't have to be talking in those terms at all but again I sort of have the feeling that well if we talk about it in this way you know over the next three or four years then maybe we'll get to the point where we don't even need to have the to have that conversation because it will already you know it will kind of automatically be happening and I'm really like pleased about the fact that it already feels like because we've been pushing it it's kind of starting to take on its own momentum in the sense that a lot of artists would come to us now and think the CCPT a place they might mm-hmm. come and perform who might not have come here before you know getting approached by theatre companies to partner on projects that are specifically about this this issue um you know, who just wouldn't have thought thought of us as you know that's a question or a space that we want to be yeah, in. They wouldn't before. have seen themselves. Yeah. In our space before. Yeah. So it's I, I think it's amazing how quickly it's <laughs> it, it can make a really big difference. Um, you just got to work at it basically and just crack on, haven't you? Yeah. How about you, Brian? What's your time scale? <coughs> I don't have one. <laughs> I'm I'm the least future projecting person in the world, in my own life and professional. It's pathetic, <laughs> you know, people really have to force me through my own trauma to be strategic, think strategically. So, okay, so tell me why you do stuff. Like, like oh. the, you know, a show that you've programmed for this year, why, like, what was your intent? It would just be cool? Uh, yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean that's, br- like, that's brilliant. Like, I wish, I wish that was possible. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's partly why I think we work well together, because, you know, and it was the same... With Jenny in the past, Jenny had a strategic brain. But yeah, I just. just but, ju- <laughs> but hang on, because I just want to unpick that a little bit. Because something is why is something brilliant? Is something brilliant because it the emo- the the um experience of it in the ninety minutes when you're watching it is brilliant, or because you carry something with you out of the place for the next week is brilliant, or because in a year's time you might think back to it and go oh, or 
because it might chain or it might affect it might have some impact on the wider arts yeah. ecology like your definition of brilliant yeah, no, it's all, it's all, it's tells all, me what the time scale it's is all right? of those things but it, but what it never is at least in my imagination is it's never because oh if we, if we program this then in 10 years time the theatre landscape might be like that okay it's never that for, for me yeah but but yeah, it can be anything between that. Sh I've seen that show; it's absolutely magic. I'd love to have it here so other people can experience that too. Mm. You know, or it can be like doing a a, a festival of uh, housing crisis and regeneration. Who's London is it anyway? You know, mm -hmm. you just think, well, that you know, there's a whole bunch of work bubbling up about that. So if we did a festival around that, that'd be a super exciting way to focus the conversation around that and to try and push that agenda forward and to connect with loads of communities that we're not currently speaking to. And, so is that strategic thinking or is that just thinking this would be a wicked thing to do? I, I trick Brian into strategic thinking. He doesn't know that he's doing it, but um, by the kind of tone of the conversations that we have. Now, I think that I think you are do, doing yourself a bit of a disservice because I think No, it's not that me. It's not mentioned for <laughs> false modesty. It's generally, that's my sentiment. But I think that the... I do think that there's a, you know, I don't know, a, a sensibility and a set of principles that are built into the decision making process that you know maybe don't necessarily feel that strategic at the time but i mean we often often have conversations about shows that we really really like but they're just not right for cpt because you know they're not achieving what we want to you know what our program yeah, is oh there no, to I'd do, agree. yeah it can know. be strategic and in that sense i suppose but it's, it's the sort of future thinking that yeah, yeah. Usually, just literally, quite literally, brings me out in a cold sweat when people invite me to think about where I'll be in five years' time. <laughs> like, literally, I'm like, I have to leave the room. He's great fun on away days. <laughs> um, I mean, but I feel like that's really interesting because I think we don't. I I'm aware that we don't get to think immediately very much. Like we always like with you know your business plan and you and that's how you get your money. <laughs> of any kind mm -hmm. and you and you and I think we're encouraged to think in quite an instrumental way about impact on social society and ecology and whatever but actually there is a there is a a value in art in a really just fucking immediate sense right it just makes this moment <coughs> better um, yeah I don't really believe in the future it's a philosophical thing isn't it there's no such thing as the future it's just a constant sequence of present moments in which I live you know, you could spend a lot of time worrying about the future and then you get hit by a bus. Why bother? I'm going to take that <laughs> and I'm going to raise it to there's no such thing as now because anything we're perceiving is actually the past because by the time we've perceived it, it's gone. Wow. <laughs> so, fuck it, we're all living in the past. So, let's rip up the business plan now. <laughs> um, so, okay, so I feel like this is this is leading into why do you guys do this? Like, why, why theatre? Why performance? Why the arts? Why... Why? Why this? Why? It's a terrible. It's a terrible career choice. Everybody advised me against it. Like, why do you? Why do you do it? Um, I've never regretted it for a second. It's not an answer, though, is it? <laughs> um, why do? Uh, but why does anyone do anything? Except you sort of fall into it. I, I mean, as I've just described, I've never projected forward, so I never had anything resembling like an ambition to do something when I was young. Um. I think I probably ended up in this largely because my friend Alex Murdoch asked me to join her theatre company as a, at the point at which I was graduating so that she's entirely to blame for my theatre career um, why do I now do it you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure like everyone who works in the arts you've not infrequently asked yourself a bunch of questions about how valid is this or what difference is it making or is it just shoring up all the existing privileges or are you just like court jester to capitalism um, but you know, broadly speaking, I'm satisfied that you know the, the the work I do in its own small way makes people's some people's lives better, or or you know, encourages more good into the world than bad, which is you know maybe not all that ambitious, but not the it's worst not thing. Right place to start. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I guess I I think just always have felt sort of pretty at home working in theatre and performance like you know I've been heavily involved since I was probably about 10 years old and never really had apart from when I had a slight waiver and tried to be commercial 
and realised what a mistake it was. Actually, that was, you know, that was a really, really heartening thing to go away and try and work in a different context and really discover that it didn't make me happy at all. And actually, you know, that I really do feel very happy and sort of doing what I should be doing with mm. my life. So that's really, really positive. Um, yeah, so just where I'm supposed to be, basically. It's a bit of a, feels like a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, you've got to, you've definitely, you know, as you have alluded to, you don't make much money out of it, so you've got to you've got to love it. I mean, I love it to bits. I mean, you know, Jenny, I keep harping on about Jenny. When Jenny worked here, she, you know, she no longer works in the arts, and she she did a good job at kind of people's theatre, but she didn't enjoy it. Uh, you know, because it was the she didn't really love the arts enough. She didn't love theatre enough, and she wouldn't mind me saying that. She would admit that. You know, the only way to survive some of the difficulties working in the arts is by loving the hell out of mm. the arts or whichever art form you happen to be involved with. You know, and there's there's more than enough like thrills and excitements at being at CBT and watching young artists blossom or seeing amazing pieces of work by people with 20 years less theatre making experience than you, which are far more theatrically sophisticated and terrific than anything you've ever made. It, you know, it makes the heart sore frequently. It's a yeah. nice, you know, you know, or, or telling telling stories to people that that have a profound effect on them. You know, or or being the, the people who brought who created a space for that to happen is a super motivating and inspiring thing to do so so yeah I, that's why I stay in it because it's really good fun yeah yeah and I think I do sort of have you know for better or worse like some kind of like uh, real faith in kind of like the particular power of what theatre can do and that being something that is distinctive from what anything else can do almost and I think it's something about um, the kind of idea of kind of a third space and like you know I'm really interested in theatre buildings in particular and like what role they can play in society and this kind of place where people can come together in you know a real time and a real place and engage with really really big ideas and think really really deeply about things is yeah, that uh, that I really have faith that that's a really important thing mm -hmm. to happen, and it's a pretty cool thing to do with your life to kind of try and facilitate that that happening and trying to hold those spaces. Um, you know, and I think I think theatre does it in a different way to any other kind of context that that meeting happens because the business is of thinking about what the significance is of meeting, if that makes sense. So, I mean, there's obviously other parallels you could think, like, I don't know, like a church or a football stadium or something like that, but actually because your job so much is thinking about what it means for all those people to be in that and room also together. the reciprocity of it, in that there's a, there's a sense, like, for example, in church, that, you know, God, God does his thing regardless of whether I turn up to church, but this thing in the theatre, like... I like I it, it the meaning of it exists at the point it goes into my head at the point that we yes. together do this thing and we under and something is made in the gap between us. Yes, yes. So so that reciprocity, it you like you don't you don't get that in church. You get you get told stuff. Yeah. Um, and you, you, I mean, maybe you get it at a football. Maybe there's something in like massive sports. I don't understand sports. I'm not sure. Yeah. But like I feel like there, I feel like there's a collective tribalism in sport but there isn't necessarily that connection between um uh, do doer and observer or, or, or audience and performer yeah. or whatever those right words are yeah there's some kind of like something different about the kind of contract in theater isn't there mm. and it's yeah i mean it just like i think quite often the fact like it just seems like it shouldn't work like it's kind of illogical in a lot of ways like it's probably a really bad business mm. model that you like you know, spend so much time and energy creating this thing that's only ever going to be seen by a handful of people, you know, um, and, yeah. But also, because we, we're really social, like, I'm reading a book about, the like, human evolution at the moment and how our society's evolved, and I, I'm really interested in this sense that we're so social and we have these massive brains that allow us to be social, but our being social is what makes our brains massive it's this it's this weird feedback loop and so we are who we are because we get together in groups and we imagine shit yeah like that's literally what 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 makes us human yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and we collaborate and we imagine and it and those are the things that make us different 
from our nearest you know chimps and bonobos that are our nearest relatives so that in it that like theater feels like the purest form of that because because it isn't just because there's the there's the audience performer as an individual but also if if you don't have the other 50 people there with you it's a totally different experience it feels different like you, you need to be sitting in a group even if you don't talk to them even if yeah. you don't there's something about breathing the same air yeah 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 that really matters and i love you know i love the idea that everyone just subscribes to sit there in the dark in silence together and accept that that's what they're going to do yeah. for two hours you know i'm not like really down on this idea Even though that, that seldom in the... happens at cbc <laughs> yeah. um but yeah also um but just we're going to be like we're going to do this thing together and we're going to be safe i'm safe with these other 50 strangers i trust you guys not to do bad shit to me in the semi again fatal mistake (laughs) (laughs) i think i think as well like i have this like real optimism that like there's going to be you know because you know of, of the landscape and like how reliant we are on social media and all the rest of it like i have this kind of faith that like you know theatre is going to become more even more attractive more desirable and more necessary to people's lives as a kind of counterpoint to you know the Mm. kind of weird isolating but allegedly social experience of kind of being online it feels Mm. like it kind of chimes with you know the things that are kind of moving away from that I don't know something about mindfulness or like you know the need for that kind of collective life it sort of current connection it feels like theatre will become more important because it only works if you're here now yeah yeah and like isn't that bloody great like isn't isn't it like just going to be so you know aren't people going to feel so refreshed about the fact that they might have to like switch their phones off for two hours like and that actually being like a really healing cleansing sort of alternative offer to what Mm. you know so much of our rest the rest of our lives are now so yeah it's it there's something about get, being given permission to just be just be present yeah focus yeah that you kind of don't like you get quite rarely yes sure exactly exactly in my head no, we, like, we know all these things but there's still a lot of work to do to spread the gospel shall we say you know, like I agree with you, theatre has the potential to become a lot more, a, a lot like uh, bigger and more popular and perceived in different ways. But uh, but then we're also living through a time when, like, theatre and education is disappearing, or you know, mm. lots and lots of young people are not exposed to it in the way that it used to be. So, but so I think it's interesting. I sort of think, like, you know, it's sort of part of that same thing where you know now there's like a big trend coming in for like people reading long form essays and mm. they want to spend loads of time really engaging with a big idea Complex. because it's such a it's such a counterpoint to so much of how qu- quick <clears throat> and instantaneous our culture is mm. and i think theatre you know again could be a really really healthy and meaningful yeah no i agree but it's, it's a small to, small tranche of society who are reading right now messages. brian we keep preaching the gospel yeah there. i mean i agree with <laughs> every, everything you say but i'm just as concerned as everybody is and as we always have been about making sure that it's not just the an art form that entertains the well-to-do. Yeah. Except at Christmas, when everybody comes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think yeah, I think that well-to-do thing is a. Again, that's one of those another one of those really massive misconceptions about what theatre is that drives me a little bit insane. And then I say it's a misconception, and then my boyfriend took me to see a thing at the National the other day that I never would in a million years would have booked to see but it was very kind of him and <laughs> and thank you Julian and um, I shouted at him all the way home because I was so angry about the thing are you going to reveal what it was? it was Platonov at the National and I I'm not its target audience I was at least 20 years younger than the other youngest person there. Um, and it made, me really a- it made me really angry because it was all of the things that I spend all my time telling people theatre isn't, I think. Mm. There wasn't space for me or for anybody I fucking know in it. Mm. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was perpetuating th- like shit about women that made me really angry and... Oh God! Shit about class that made me really angry, and it was a dead white play in a new version by 
fucking David Hare, <laughs> who I'm sure is a lovely bloke. Hi, David. I'm sure you listen. Um, uh, who is a lovely? I'm sure is a lovely bloke. But like, I don't need to hear that story again. That story has so much space. That story needs to be killed. And I yeah. look. I'm doing it again. I'm shouting. Ah, ranting. Um, so theatre, because theatre is that thing, right? That thing that only the well to do. That kind of theatre is. How how do we spread the gospel? How do we make it different? Mm. Because also, you know, I've seen some things at the National that felt like the most... Like I saw Walworth Fast, Ender Walsh's Walworth Fast, directed by Michael Murphy at the National. Like, one of the most alive and brilliant and transformative things that I will ever see, and I carry it with me, and I wonder about it regularly on the bus still, like five or six years later, seven years later... Well, we had a conversation last night in our feminism festival. We had a on-stage panel discussion about women, politics, and power. And Ayesha Hazarika, who's a political commentator and a former advisor to the Labour Party, she was talking about how to re- reform politics to make it more diverse. Mm. And she said somewhat counterintuitively that she thought the single thing that would be most effective would be to diversify political commentary, which is all done at the moment by middle-aged white men. Mm with the exception of Polytoning <laughs> and a few others <laughs> but you know I, I, I'm sure to some degree you could say the same about theatre you know and the, the, like the, the cadre of theatre critics has evolved a little bit over the past few years but, the, but you wouldn't look at the theatre critics and the national press and say that they're the most diverse bunch in the history of the world that yeah that like really used to drive me a bit crazy at the Albany actually like the extent to which I felt that like there was so little acknowledgement that like a perception of quality by kind of the mainstream press was entirely shaped by like what the default man would like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact is that things like Platonov, you know, there's, I mean, not, don't mean to single out Michael Billington, but I'm a Guardian reader, so he's the obvious one to do so mine. The, a whole bunch of critics are going to be super delighted when a, a seldom performed Chekhov play gets revived at a major institution. <laughs> to them, that's like Christmas comes out. Mm. But to 95% of the population, there's nothing more tedious in the history of the world. So, you know, and, and as long as theatres are bound to operate in an ecology where they are arbiters of whether what they make is good or not, have those tastes. You know, maybe, I'm, maybe it's, it's out of date for me to say this, maybe all the other ones are dead now, isn't it? What? All the other old white theatre critics, don't they? But it's difficult, isn't it? Because there's, because even as the old white, <laughs> even as, as even as one generation dies off, because we've created a value structure based on those values, yeah. like th- we're still teaching that. But I think that's you know that is interesting for us because our audience is something like is it sixty seven percent under thirty something mm. around that. Um, it's it's a really young audience it's a really young audience and so actually and you know our artists are really young as well i mean i often feel like i'm the oldest person in this building and i'm 32 but you're you are actually (laughs) but you know it's it's really really young artists and it's really really young audiences often not exclusively um and actually so that's why i have this feeling like the kind of decisions we make about like what what voices we kind of privilege and what kind of stories make on make it onto our stage is going to you know define what the tastes are to some extent in the future yeah i just think in theory everything should the default should be it's new everything should be new because the moment the default is everything's a revival of a classic you know and like if uh, you know in the guardian you know autumn previews or whatever the 10 most exciting theater events of the upcoming season eight or nine of them will be so-and-so's doing his Hamlet, can't wait to see it. Uh-huh. So-and-so's doing his Inchayojin. That should be the exception. Occasionally we should revive an old play. I mean, Everything it's the equivalent of Friends new. reruns, right? Yeah. And like, also, if you're like... like the biggest events in publishing this year are not someone's reprinted Bleak House. <laughs> Everything should be new. I had a meeting with an artist this morning who did a show in our feminism festival last week, a one-woman Macbeth. It was ace. It was really good, and I'm talking to her about bringing it back next year. But one of the suggestions, I didn't make this suggestion to her, so if you're listening, Haiti, I should have said this to her. You know, one of my suggestions was, I was tempted to say was change the title, because Macbeth is off-putting to our audience. Yeah. You know, yeah. The rest of the theatre wants to go and see Macbeth, maybe at the National or whatever. I don't, I don't want anything in our programme that's called Macbeth. Yeah. It makes us look less aggressive. <laughs> change the title. Give it, give it a funky, sexy title. Fact, like, kudos to you, because if I'd got that email way back when, I'd be like, oh, and probably not read it. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's a off, off, you know, even though it's a great show, it's... 
by our standards a lot of excitement yeah and why if you've got like if you've got some massive celebrity like who's up for like doing a play at your theatre like wouldn't you do like a more interesting play than Hamlet you're going to sell the tickets anyway so like I don't know do something a bit more exciting if you've got Benedict Cumberbatch for example I agree I mean that's because I goodness knows I'm sure all of us in this room love Shakespeare nothing wrong with Shakespeare it's great but it's fine. I'm perfectly happy if there's only one revival of Hamlet in the next ten years. <laughs> I can read it. It's still there. It's on if you watch a film. I don't have to see eighteen revivals every fucking year. I'm gonna allow each. <laughs> I, I reckon I'm gonna allow each of like the big flagships one Shakespeare a year. Yes. For their fucking school's money, yeah. right? Because that because that money is useful to them, I suppose, and it stops them like sucking up more public resources. So they can have one, and they all have to do different ones. Yeah, and fight it out between them. Yeah, ones. I like that's, that. maybe that's, it's that's, like a rotor system. They're allowed like Hamlet every twenty-five yeah, years. because it's the September. Because you have like your Christmas show, right, for your money, and then you have your September Shakespeare classical on the syllabus thing. They're allowed that, and then everything else. Oh, they can trade it out for like a Chekhov or an Ibsen if they must. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Um, right, last last question. It's just solved. <laughs> solved. There we go. So your pitch for uh, chief exec of the arts council, right there? <laughs> no. Oh God. I can you imagine a worse job? Um, uh, right. Last question. It, when you go from this place, this place being Cameron People's Theatre, Part A, and Part B being the the plane of human existence, what? do you want to leave behind? Well, I've already told you that when people ask me to live in the future, I come <laughs> out in hives. Now you're asking me to contemplate my own death. Oh, come on. Theatre's all about <laughs> contemplating our own death. That's all I do. One of the best shows in the history of theatre is Im- Improbable's Life Game. Mm. And the final scene in which they like interview someone about their life and act out the scenes of their life and they get told. And the last scene is always you know, how, how would you like to die and then the improbable performers act out their death in front of the person who's getting interviewed it's always like heart in the mouth stuff which is uh, pretty much how I feel now that I've got it for <laughs> <laughs> um, um, legacies what do you want to leave behind I, say, I sort of I've got this like feeling like I kind of like almost want to I mean, there's obviously things we want to change, but I also kind of want to leave CPT largely how we found it. And, like, that's why I've got, you know, this sort of... Like, there's going to there's gonna probably become a point where my ambitions move on from what CPT is here to do. And rather than us kind of trying to change CPT to fit our ambition, mm-hmm. that actually that's the point for us to move on. Mm-hmm. And, like, so I just kind of really like to get CPT being, like a risk-taking central London theatre as well as we possibly can and then move on really um I mean it is a big thing for me about like the diversity of who makes work and who comes into the building and like as far as we can push that and make it as as mixed as we possibly can and as kind of reflective of who lives in this local area as we possibly can the better that that's a big thing but I think it's just yeah getting it working doing what it's meant to do really well and then move on to the next challenge don't try and like hugely hugely change what it does because it's important you know I feel like that's really important I feel like that's worth saying again because so many so many organizations do this thing where they they have something brilliant and uh, alive and and the, yeah, and the ambition of the people within it forces that organisation to change. And they do stupid things like build a new building mm, that totally mm. changes the character mm. of what the place is, or move, or you know, whatever, or start pulling it, trying to pull in bigger, bigger in inverted commas artists or more commercial stuff and sell more tickets. And and that ambition change, yeah, totally changes what the place is. Yeah. And the thing that it was was what what was alive and special. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I'm quite resistant to this idea about, um, you know, directors like coming in and having like a big vision for how they're going to totally transform the place. Because actually, 
well I mean of course there's Sometimes things that you we, need it. yeah of course <laughs> of course there's things that do need to you know to change but I think you know CPT has a very specific role to play in the London ecology and it's a really you know and the national ecology and I think it's a really really important role to play and I think our job is to yes refine it yes get it doing it better but not in any way to kind of like fundamentally change the core of what it is um so there's CPT. So my ambition is not to have an ambition. There you go. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, we want it to yeah. be like a, we want to leave a little oasis. I mean, it's, it's important that it's a central London place too. We want it to be like a little oasis, a little better world, a template for a better world in the middle of. Yeah, Euston, just off Euston Road. Just off Euston Road. And I mean, that's the road to hell. Often. I mean, that is. I mean, we do talk about this building a lot. I mean, it is awful in a lot of ways. But then also, like, I just think I just have this feeling like if we go. You know, it's not going to become another interesting alternative experimental arts yeah. venue, is it? It's going to become a Costa Coffee, and yeah, so given, like given it given kind of feels like, like it's, more, it's more and more significant that mm. little Weird. sleazy fly-by-night places like CBT survive in central London. Yeah, I'm more and motivated about that than I was five years ago, given what's happening to London. We try to be as sleazy and fly-by-night as we possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's an excellent tagline. Yeah, sleazy and fly-by-night. And and do either of you want to tell me about what you want to leave when when you're gone, forever, or is that is that a question too much? I haven't really thought about it. I'd like to write a really good book of nature writing. <laughs> really, no, I sort of think something about like um, just maybe otters, life on Exmoor, wildlife on Exmoor. Okay. But I'm being a bit tone cheek, but that is actually one thing. I when I retire, though, maybe. Um, what? I don't know. What do you think? Um, I don't know. I'd like to be fondly remembered by my loved ones. <laughs> <laughs> that's about the apex of my ambition. Even that's looking quite hard to achieve, to be honest. Um, I mean, it'd be nice to... Yeah, who knows? It'd be nice to leave, like, some theatre work that... Maybe I could be the person whose plays are being boringly revived at <laughs> the National Theatre in 100 years time <laughs> um, uh, yeah it'd be nice to ha- have a sense that one's work had um, left some kind of legacy but exactly what that could be I mean I really like I would you know to be a bit more you know serious um, I'd I would genuinely like to kind of play a significant role in kind of making you know, a theatre sector that is more relevant and accessible to a much, much broader range of people. And I don't, you know, I think that it's realistic that I can contribute significantly to making that change. Mm. And I think that's quite a good... I don't think it's actually that hard. (laughs) I think if we, like, really put our minds... I mean, it's a small enough sector, isn't it? Like, I think if we just all, like, put our minds to it and, like, work... to actually do what we talk about all the time. Yeah. And not, like, yeah, not, like, sit around, like, chin-stroking all the time, but just get on and do it, Mm. you know? And I think... It's harder to do it in in an era where the answer being undermined than it would be. Well, with that kind of attitude, Brian, it is. No, no, I agree. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's political. I mean, we can't sort of, like, you know, lay all the blame at our own doors because we're kind of, like, just all desperately, like, trying to cling on and, like, scrap together enough money to survive. But, yeah. Yeah, I suppose I'm only saying that as a corrective to you saying it's not that hard, which I agree, in principle it isn't, but but it's unnecessarily harder in an era when you're having to make the case for arts funding in the first place. But yes, no, I agree. So I don't mean to be the council of despair. Let's all give up and throw our hands in the air. I think I vacillate. Is that the word? Vacillate yeah. quite wild, wildly between just you know just wanting to add something to the sum of human knowledge. Just that, yeah. which again seems really simple. But then when you think about human knowledge, which is quite on next one. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but then also, I sort of think maybe there's an, an like an honour, an honourableness in just passing into nothing. There's like a a respectability to that, you know. Oh yeah, and aren't we? You know, like you said earlier, isn't the theatre all about sort of coming to terms with our own transience? <coughs> so maybe that's just demonstrates we're very good, good theatre people that we don't actually give a fuck about our legacy. <laughs> it's a funny thing though, isn't it? Because on the one hand, theatre does feel like it just just it's gone. It doesn't ever exist in a tangible form. Yeah. And but then at the same time, like it's it feels so so much of how we think about theatre is this big weighty thing, this cultural thing. I got the old Vic last night, like it felt like heavy. Mm-hmm. 
and I, and I and I'm watching watching the nose knife thing and thinking about all the other people that had been on that stage, and like God, can you like carrying that weight? If I was acting on that stage, I would feel them sitting on my shoulders. Mm-mm. Um. This yeah. isn't a, a point. This is me yeah. rambling. Uh, I mean, uh, my theatre company started its life in the late 1990s at BAC under Tom, when Tom Morris ran BAC. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of other companies, or artists, as ours do, look back on that as a sort of halcyon era, mm-hmm. when the bar was upstairs. And it was, it seemed to it seemed to be like a febrile uh, atmosphere of possibility and artistic yeah. invention. But probably, you know, I imagine most artists have got like a, an equivalent to what Tom Morris's BAC is to us, and Tom Wendy and people mm-hmm. like us and a bunch of other companies. Might yeah, even be CPT it, for some. Well, that's exactly what yeah. I'm about to say. Oh, but, sorry. Uh, 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 you know, to that comes to mind as maybe something that would be nice to think of as a legacy in that in 20 years time a bunch of artists who are here now look back and think oh that was a thing wasn't it we were part that we were part of the movement or there was an ex- yeah, a moment it was, it was an exciting time to to be there and that and that atmosphere helped us create good work or, mm. or, or hoard some precious memories because i guess you kind of as a, you, you kind of don't know because you don't know what what pebble you're dropping into people's heads now into artists that in however many years will be will be a ripple that is a thing that that will be a pebble that's a bigger ripple you know i've over exhausted that metaphor but i think also like just that it you know it's quite fun to be here and it does feel quite fun to me quite a lot of the time and i hope that the artists feel like it's quite a fun you know and audiences as well feel like it's it's quite a cool, fun place to be. I think that's that's good, you know, that people have a good time. I feel like that's a really good place to stay. <laughs> um, do either of you want to add anything to this? Are there things you're like, I should have said that? Probably come to me at 3am. Yeah, no, no, I'm happy to let Amber have the last word. <laughs> say, say that I've just ruined it by <laughs> interposing this. We'll just cut that off. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, guys. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you 